Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Film Literature in the New World Order podcast. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it has been an awfully long time since we've had an edition of FLNWO, so thank you for hanging in there while I was busy pumping out the oil uh, oligarch documentary that I hope you've all had the chance to watch by now, but obviously I was so busy with that that uh, FLNWO got snowed under for a month or two. But here we are back in a new year with a new episode of the program, and as promised, we're going to be talking about the Manchurian Candidate. Uh, specifically, we're going to be focusing on the 1962 film version directed by John Frankenheimer, produced by Frank Sinatra and starring Frank Sinatra as Major Bennett Marco, based on the novel by Richard Condon, which was released in 1959, the movie coming out in 1962. And I hope it won't need a great deal of elaboration as to why we are focusing on The Manchurian Candidate. For people who are familiar with this podcast or my work generally, I think you'll probably already understand what we're really talking about here. But of course, this is a film which revolves around a very interesting plot that has something to do with the subject of mind control. And it's not quite as fictional as it may seem at first glance. But again, you probably already knew that. If from nothing else, then episode 220 of the Corbett Report uh, podcast, The Strange Case of Sirhan Sirhan, where we talked a little bit about the possibility that Sirhan Sirhan was something of a Manchurian candidate-style mind-controlled assassin, or at least uh, programmed to provide a dis uh, distraction for the real assassin of Ro uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., or Robert F. Kennedy, I should say. Um, but all of that being what it is, I think this is a fascinating topic to explore as it relates to the now declassified and now somewhat understood mind control programs of the CIA that actually did exist, Project Bluebird, Project Artichoke, MKUltra, and their variants. And in order to help us piece through all of these various pieces of the puzzle. Today we're going to be joined by Tim Kelly, who I hope you know from his podcast, Our Interesting Times. I've been a guest on that podcast myself a couple of times, and he has always got uh, interesting guests with certainly some interesting commentary. You can check him out at his uh, Podomatic page or on the UCY network, which covers, uh, which carries his podcast. I will include, of course, a link to the Podomatic page so you can go and uh, subscribe to the podcast yourself if you haven't yet done so. Tim Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today on Film Literature in the New World Order. Thank you for having me on. It's a very generous introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this extremely interesting book slash movie. And I I guess just to start off with, I, of course, having rewatched the 1962 version of the film in preparation for this conversation, I was struck again by just how interesting it is to think that this was still released in something something like the tail end of the golden era of Hollywood and still had that sort of early 1960s black and white feel-good gloss to it, so that, that, that kind of feeling to it uh, before the splitting of the culture into subcultures and countercultures and all of the craziness of the 1960s. It still had a, a bit of a sheen of that innocence, but obviously a very, very bleak film with a very dark ending, one that I can imagine would have been shocking to audiences at the time and uh, certainly did, well, cause enough of a commotion that it uh, disappeared from distribution shortly after the assassination of John F. Kennedy and uh, disappeared for a decade or more. So an interesting film with an interesting pedigree and an interesting story and so many different branches to follow here. Obviously, the main one that we want to be focusing on today is the very real and now declassified or 
somewhat declassified mind control programs of the intelligence agencies of the United States. But uh, let's just start with your overall impressions of what do you think this book slash movie was really actually accomplishing here. Why was it released in the late 50s, early 60s, a decade plus before MKUltra or its variants were ever made known to the public? Yeah, let's dispense with the idea that it was just entertainment. <laughs> just a movie, right? Yeah. Uh, there's something more to it. And uh, yeah, you mentioned the, revela- the revelations of MKUltra a decade later, and what we've learned since then, uh, is that this seems to be some sort of limited hangout slash... I would say Cold War propaganda film. That was my impression. Um, if you watch the movie, um, I'm going to assume the listeners know what happens. And you know, it's about a story about a, a, a platoon, intelligence unit that gets kidnapped and taken you know, to somewhere in Manchuria, and they go under hip, hypnotic uh, techniques and other brainwash techniques, and they return. And uh, you know, the Raymond Shaw uh, is this mind-controlled assassin who who's um, who then is uh, you know controlled by his mother, who's also a communist spy slash something. That's also up for question if you watch the movie a couple of times. But um, uh, one thing I do get from the movie is, is, is it does support the Cold War narrative. Uh, the idea is the mind, the mind controllers, the evil mind controllers, the evil ones are the communists, and the Americans are portrayed very pos- positively in the movie. Um, one thing is you see the communist block is portrayed as sort of a monolithic communist block because you have this room where these, where they, uh, the uh, this uh, sort of Fu Manchu doctor is demonstrating what he's done to the to the GIs, and this filled of various uh, uh, pol- or officials from the communist bloc, you know, Chinese, Russian. There's some sense of tension that they portray in the movie. So there's there's some sense of the Sino-Soviet split going on there, but they're all working together. And so, again, the notion here is is uh, that the mind control program is instigated by the communist. So what's funny is in 1962 or 1959 with the novel, that story is being told, although at the time it was not known that the Americans were uh, had undergone – had instituted their own programs, at least officially in 1953 uh, with, uh, with, um, uh, with the uh, uh, Bluebird. Uh, uh, but we know now that uh, that experimenting on mind control or altering human behavior dates as far back as – at least as, as World War II. But really, the uh, official memo went out. I think it was April twentieth, nineteen fifty, with Admiral Killen, uh, Hillen Coulter, who was the uh, CIA director, approved research into that. So it predates uh, the, the the Korean War. Although the official story is that America was facing what they call a mind control gap, <laughs> <laughs> like the missile gap, right? Or the mind shaft gap, Doctor right. Strangelove, right? Yeah. Right, right. Um, and that was Alan Dulles, and there was all types of hysteria that the communists were trying to. Uh, uh, Declare brain warfare, mental warfare on the West, uh, and so that was the justification. But we now know that that the program actually predates the Korean War. So that that excuse, you know, is we know is is not valid for the program itself. Right, and and you raise an interesting point because, of course, obviously the the enemy here, the the kind of nebulously defined, more inferred than really understood enemy here is is that kind of Soviet Chinese. Uh, communist threat 
somehow defined. But I thought the interesting part of it was that they do have agents in the United American agents who are helping them along for whatever reasons exactly. Uh, uh, Ray, Raymond Shaw's mother is is mm-hmm. involved in this, obviously for her own political power and what have you. And she says she's going to make them pay for what they did to you. But yeah, at the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. But one wonders how much she really cares about what they did to her son anyway because she did go along with the plot so that's an interesting sort of wrench in in that works but perhaps just for narrative purposes but still um it's kind of i guess the uh, the the plot ends up being something like a a false flag where the assassination presumably is going to be blamed on communist forces but then used (laughs) to consolidate power for a hidden political sleeper agent in in the United States for the communist forces themselves. So uh, again, uh, quite an, I mean, there's a lot of revelation going on here, even if it is misdirection. The speech that the, uh, that Senator Iceland is supposed to give after the presidential candidate shot dead is written by the communists. (laughs) Yeah. It's been worked on for eight years or something. Yeah. Something by by the communists. But then you start to think, well, wait a second. Then you have, you know, her her mother's plans to, you know, to bury them in the dirt or something for what they did to her son. If that, as you say, if that's really her motivation. But then you start to think, well, is this some sort of like false dialectic? Then you start thinking about the Cold War in general and Anthony Sutton's research. <laughs> and you, you think, well, who's really pulling the strings here, right? Yeah, right. Really, yes. You know, and so are they, what, what is the movie revealing here? It's one of these things where, you know, I. You know, and of course, what we do know uh, through other through r- various researchers, Colin Ross and John Marks and Walter Barrett, in the in their books on the topic, is uh, what the communists were accused of doing in the movie actually occurred uh, during the MKR, some of the uh, you know, the Bluebird and MKRALTO research in the fifties and sixties. Um, I believe the murder of Frank Olson. I think well. I think officially it's still a suicide, but it's heavily suspected he was murdered. Yes. Uh, I think his breakdown occurred when there's some experimenting going on some some North Korean prisoners, a mind control experiment, I think, and they were taken. I'm not sure if the North Korean prisoners or just soldiers themselves. We may have the detail wrong. But apparently, some soldiers. I thought they were prisoners, but I might have that wrong. Um, were taken, uh, the program didn't work, and they were made to bury their own grave and then, then shot dead. Hmm. And Frank also witnessed this, and that's when he had his breakdown, and that's when he was given the right. Ellis concoction at Deep Creek Lake in Maryland and set him off this, set him on this path where he eventually, you know, dove out the window. Supposedly. Yes. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the specifics of these programs, or at least what we've been allowed to know about them. And that in itself, I think, is interesting. But anyway, Project MK Ultra is now, I think, it, 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 that has seeped its way, I think, more or less into the public consciousness. It's not a subject that is uh, that is completely unfamiliar to people. It has worked its way into a few movies uh, in one way or another uh, by name. So I think it's more or less out in the open now. And uh, it was in the 1970s, the church committee uh, was, gave the first revelations of it. But of course, this was this was a uh, an iteration of the CIA mind control program, but one that was uh, largely conducted in, in research and uh, research institutions by 
medical professionals and, and things of that nature. But perhaps the more interesting aspects of this come from the earlier iterations of this, like Artichoke. And I do have a, uh, a January 22nd, 1954, almost 62 years to the day, uh, a report on Artichoke that talked a little bit about some of the aims of that program, including the question of, the age-old question, can an individual of redacted descent be made to perform an act of attempted assassination involuntarily under the influence of artichoke? Uh, again, I mean, it's the exact question that, of course, is played on in this movie, and as, again, as I detailed in episode 220 of the podcast, very much comes into play with the question of Sirhan Sirhan and what happened with RFK. So, um, and and there's there's much more detail here in this document where they talked about uh, at least the, the problem that they were uh, attempting to solve in 1954, and they phrased it this way, as a trigger mechanism for a bigger project, it was proposed that an individual of redacted descent, approximately 35 years old, well-educated, proficient in English, and well-established socially and politically in the redacted government, be induced under artichoke to perform an act involuntarily of attempted assassination against a prominent redacted politician, or if necessary, against an American official. The subject was formerly in redacted employ, but has since terminated and is now employed with the redacted government. Uh, again, just a fascinating document, just from what they're putting here. And of course, this is phrased as some sort of, you know, theoretical, can we do this? And uh, ultimately, they conclude not quite with the technology we have, you know, at this point, it would be extremely difficult. But again, this is only what has been declassified. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects of this. This Again, at the time of the book, at the time of the movie, this was completely unknown to the general public. This was not in the, uh, uh, in, in, uh, it was not declassified. It was still classified at that time, still ongoing at that time. It wasn't until 1975 and the church committee hearings that the public got their first taste of this information. And that does raise the question, which I believe has been raised by H.P. Alborelli Jr., um, writing about uh, the death of Frank Olson, that the the revelation of MK Ultra in the 1970s was an attempt to uh, limit the hangout to prevent researchers from looking at the darker deeds of Project Art Artichoke, which was more about the operational details and field work that was done along these lines. Let's talk about some of the uh, the CIA mind control programs and some of the people who are uh, who, have, who have been behind this or associated with this. What do we know about this? Well, we have, of course, we have the principal actors with with with. Colin Ross calls Doctor Colin Ross calls the CIA doctors, and that would be uh, people like uh, 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 Jose Delgado, um, uh, of course, Ewan Cameron up at uh, McGill University at the uh, Allen Memorial Institute. Um, you have uh, well George Estabrook, which actually his work, his his research predates M. Alter, goes back to as far as the World War II. Uh, he, he openly talked about, I think, creating mind-controlled assassins. So that's what he bragged about being able to achieve with his research. Other ones um, are you have, of course, you have Dr. Lewis uh, Jollyan West, a very interesting character. He's almost like a zealot type character popping up. <laughs> Whether it's Jack Ruby, uh, I think he met with uh, Sirhan Sirhan. He met with uh, with Patty Hearst, and the reports they also met with Tim Timothy McVeigh. So there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> Quite the pedigree. Yeah. 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 I think it was Colin Ross was talking about. Said, yeah, you have you have Jack Ruby. He shot dead in Dallas. So who do you call? You call Jolly Weston from California to come in. And t- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's no psychiatrist in Dallas in the Dallas yeah. area. Yeah. Um, so some of these characters that there were some interesting some figures like Ewan Cameron, who was. I think at the top of the heap of the psychiatric community, he was the head of the World Psychological Association, the Canadian Psychological Association. Uh, so he, these are big names, and I think under the rubric of empiricology, I think the entire field of psychiatry was co-opted, as also dozens of universities and corporations. I, you know, what's funny? You think things like J.P. Morgan were, were contracted for it, and also the Scottish Rite, uh, Freemasonry. So you really, I mean, you really go down the rabbit hole when you look into this stuff, the connections, because you realize how all these organizations, whether it's military, intelligence, universities, corporations, they're all connected, and it kind of gives you a glimpse into sort of the matrix of how it, how it operates. It, you know, yes, it's almost like yes. you know, like with with Gladio and P two, how it, it, they use the this free Masonic Lodge in Italy to carry out some of these criminal activities. Exactly. Yeah. Same with organized crime, right? Because it's all kind of they're all kind of. These organizations are very similar, whether it's intelligence or organized crime or, or Freemasonry. Yeah. <laughs> it's all secret, secret societies and secret yeah. intelligence agencies, yeah. very much uh, similar. Um, uh, this, of course, I mean, again, just given the level of detail of uh, of what what goes into this book slash movie, clearly there is some actual knowledge of uh, that, that's going on here. This wasn't just dreamt up by some you know Hollywood scriptwriter. This was obviously something that. Well, I guess we'd have to point the figure at Richard Condon as the author yeah. of the novel uh, as having some basis for this information. And uh, for people who haven't, I, I have started reading the novel. I haven't finished it in time for this conversation, but I was surprised to find it was actually extremely well written. And I'm excited to read the, the rest of it. So uh, that that's the light. I was expecting something more like a, a pulp novel of questionable uh, value, but actually it is, it's quite quite uh, well written. And so looking at uh, Condon's biography, I note he was born in 1915 in New York City and died in 1996 in Texas. And uh, he was in the United States Merchant Marine um, uh, at the time, I believe, of the Korean War. So I'm assuming there must have been some some access at some point that he had to some intelligence information. Do you have any information on what what Condon's role might have been or what he may have seen when in his time in the Merchant Marine. Nothing concrete, but I, I did run across this with Colin, Dr. Colin Ross was, was giving a talk and he, he, he during his research into MK Ultra, he was looking at the Bluebird Artichoke documents, which are the precursors to MK Ultra. Bluebird became Artichoke and then Artichoke became, became MK Ultra, then MK Ultra became MK Search. In the seventies, I think that's how it goes, but um, chronologically, um, but he says going going through these documents, he came across a memo that was written by one CIA agent to another, and this is dated. I, mean, I think that the memo was dated nineteen fifty two, and it, it reads in part: "We need to investigate the allegations that a group of American GIs has been captured while passing through a zone in Manchuria, has been subjected to hypnosis and other brainwashing techniques." And has amnesia for that period of time. Now that is the exact plot of the Manchurian Candidate, the novel and the movie. So it strains credulity. To, yeah. <laughs> to believe that Richard Condon just a complete accident. Yeah. Wasn't fed some information. Right. In, into this stuff, and of course the CIA in publishing, just like CIA in entertainment, uh, 
I think as early as 1970, it came out during the hearings that the CIA had published over a thousand, had overseen the publication of over a thousand books. And so we can, I think it's we can, I think we're reasonable in suspecting that uh, this this was was uh, at least shepherded or at least aided by the CIA. And you know, yeah. Well, if if we really want to get out onto that speculative limb a little bit, uh, the question of of tools for establishing mind control over various victims uh, has come up in the past with regards to certain works of literature or or film that are supposedly used in indoctrinating people into these uh, these types of actions, including the Wizard of Oz, has been talked about as one of these these works that is used by the intelligence agencies when they're working on one of their mind control victims. Uh, the uh, um, uh, Catcher in the Rye has been yeah, talked yeah. about in that regard. Has the Manchurian Candidate, either the book or the film, ever been talked about in that regard? I don't believe I've heard of it being used. But no, I've never seen it as a trigger. Um, you think they might be, you know, one of these uh, patsies they throw it in there because he's inspired by this book or something. You think right. maybe they th- maybe they think it's just too obvious. <laughs> yeah, I, it would be a bit too obvious, wouldn't it? I guess it would yeah. lead people directly back. But again, it raises to my mind really the question of why the uh, intelligence agencies would leak this information to someone like Condoner or show it to yeah. him. It, like I said, if you read, I think you're reading the book. Maybe you get this impression from the book. I get the impression from the movie that it does back up the Cold War narrative. Yeah, and basically, it, you know, it, it portrays uh, the Jason Bourne movies do this as well, and some of the other, you know, whether it's um, Mission Impossible movies and things like that. They kind of show they always it's always rogue this rogue, rogue yeah, agents, yeah. but the system is self correcting. But so does Seven Days in May, another Frankenheimer film, by mm, the way. Interesting. It gives us the impression that within the system, there at least there's competing. There's yes. somebody trying to support the Constitution. There's honor soldiers who support the Constitution. And of course, they so, usually win in the end. Yeah, and of course, in real life, yeah. is they don't have to bother with a coup. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> because yeah. Praetorians run the show anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, so okay, well, before we get into Frankenheimer, who I think is interesting, before we leave uh, Condon and what his role may have been, um, there's an interesting post that I will link to. Uh, I'm not sure I completely buy into it, but it is interesting, by uh, John Bev- Bevelacqua, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, that was republished on the Constantine Report a few years ago, uh, talking about uh, basically a, a, an encoded message in the Manchurian Candidate, or that he asserts was encoded into the Manchurian Candidate, and I will let you read through the entire post for all of the detail, but I think uh, some example of that can be garnered from uh, from this part where he says John Yerkes Iceland, which is a really strange name for yeah, the know, yeah. uh, for yeah. the uh, the vice presidential candidate uh, who is uh, assassinated at the end. John Yerkes Iceland, which is an anagram for Johnny, as in John E, the letter E. John E is Ray S. Klein. That is the anagram. John E is Ray S. Klein. <laughs> it is a perfect letter for letter basis. Uh, uh, anagram, and he asserts that Ray S. Klein is who Condon implicated, the same guy who ran the World Anti-Communist League during its most pro-fascist heyday during the 1980s. What this implies is that people like Wycliffe Draper and one of the people he funded at the Pioneer Fund, Dr. Hans F. Isink, let the genie out of the bottle after they discovered how to create Manchurian candidate programmed assassins. Anastas Vonsiataski uh, used Pavlovian and Chinese techniques in, in Manchukuo, Manchuria, China, during the Japanese occupation to train unwitting victims how to be programmed assassins. And it goes on from there, but it, that gives you at least a taste. And that, I mean, that, 
I don't know what to make of that exactly, but it is at least fascinating, the idea that there could be some very juicy clues embedded in here. Perhaps this was an attempt, a genuine attempt by Condon to get get this knowledge to the public. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating possibility. Some Okay, let's, let's concentrate a bit on Frankenheimer, because you did raise Frankenheimer and uh, some of his other movies. Of course, I think something that has to be talked about in this connection is his weird associations with... Uh, JFK and RFK. Uh, do yeah. you do you know a little bit about that story? Well, it is reported that the uh, night of oh the night before uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, he had dinner with with the senator and also with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and Mama Cass Elliot. And the he drove Senator Kennedy to the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, to where Ke- the senator was to uh, celebrate his, his victory in the de- Democratic primary, um, given the fact that he was a, he, that Senator Kennedy was 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 murdered and of course murdered by, uh, allegedly murdered by Sirhan Sirhan, but Sirhan Sirhan has all the makings of a of a mind controlled assassin, very much like in Frankenheimer's 1962 movie, and so <laughs> that's very strange. And of course, this also links RFK. Now this is very tenuous and i understand that so uh, that's that's fine but i mean it's, it's we're stretching a bit of course this links uh R- frank uh, rfk murder to the tate uh murders yes. the manson murders because it's alleged that maybe sharon tate had some knowledge of of the senator's murder uh and that might have been one of the reasons for her for her murder the following year of course her father was was a military intelligence officer Colonel Tate. Right. So, but again, this is all speculative, and I don't yeah. know what level of disinformation we're getting when we, when we get there. There are some fascinating connections there, though, that connect to the Manson and and this uh, the RFK assassination and Frankenheimer, who, of course, had one of his films pulled from circulation as a result of the assassination of JFK mm-hmm. and then drives uh, RFK to, to his death, basically. I mean, just strange things like that and for people who want some more information i did link to a uh, media monarchy interview with peter lovenda who of sinister forces who wrote about the, those types of connections and uh and james evan Pilato interviewed him on that and it's a fascinating conversation i included that at the end of uh, episode 220 on sirhan sirhan i guess before uh, we leave sirhan sirhan we should note something that really stuck out to me uh, on the rewatching of venturing candidate in preparation for this conversation is the moment where uh, he, uh, uh, Sergeant Shaw is being programmed by his mother, and so he has uh, the, the cards in front of him. But she's called out to go talk to Senator Jordan, so she takes the, the Red Queen away um, so that he can't be programmed while she's gone. And then the uh, the daughter, who he's in love with, the daughter of Senator Jordan, comes in via the, the side door, and uh, and she is wearing... <laughs> supposedly i guess just by random occurrence she is wearing i don't, I don't buy that <laughs> i don't buy that either it cannot be but I, it seems i that just started a window and i had to wear it <laughs> yeah exactly strange but so, so she is wearing literally wearing a red queen dress like a yeah. costume dress which i thought was particularly interesting given of course the sirhan Sir, one of the key aspects of the sirhan sirhan story is the polka dot dress and that is yeah. supposedly could have been the trigger, or at least part of the trigger, for putting him in the range mode to uh, to begin the shooting. So, I don't know. I, that just really jumped out at me as as something. Perhaps I I haven't seen any documents that relate specifically to pro- programming with patterns like that or with things of that nature. But it it would at least make sense that there would be some sort of trigger to put someone in that form of mode. I don't know if you've seen anything on on that specifically though. 
nothing specific, but it is. It struck me as odd because the story with, with RF, the RFK murder was you have a had a well built fetching a well built fetching young lady in a polka dot dress. That's how she's described. <laughs> so the you know so that's you know so and she apparently would, would had been giving Sirhan, Sirhan drinks the entire night and kind of escorting him around. Um, so then you have you know in the movie you have uh, uh, Senator Jordan's daughter show up. <laughs> a costume party, of course, uh, in a you know, the Queen of Diamonds costume party. So it's one of those. Well, what are the odds, right? Yeah. You know? Again, that just I couldn't I couldn't believe that that they were expecting us to take that as a coincidence. I mean, I, yeah, I thought I it mean, had but, to be programmed. Again, that, I think that could be a tell, or they're showing this is how these things. Some of these operations, some of these coincidences are so absurd, but we're told to believe them, right? Mm, like yeah. you know, you know, it's. Uh, I know it's like um, the anthrax attacks, and we're led to, to the extent that people are aware of this, was led to believe that's a coincidence that, um, although the anthrax attacks had nothing to do with 9/11 officially, yeah, 9/11 attacks, the the wife of the editor of the of the uh, of the photographer down down in the newspaper down in Miami or down in Florida uh, was Muhammad Anta's real estate agent. Yes, right. Again, just a, a, one of those one in a million. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. yeah. And so it's just one of those things. So maybe there's something there where we're led to believe that these coincidences just happen and we're supposed to, I guess, suspend critical thought for the benefit of, of the narrative, the story will be. Yes, fed. yes, yes. It's like, uh, oh, I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the journalist who was beheaded, who, um, who just happened to have lent his laptop to one of the 9-11... Uh, hijackers. Uh, oh, Pearl. Yes, uh, Pearl. Pearl. Not Richard Pearl. <laughs> That's a different Daniel Pearl. Daniel Pearl, right? Yes, yes, Daniel Pearl. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah apparently, he just happened to lend it to one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> someone who went on to be a, an alleged nine eleven hijacker. Yeah. So... Uh, what are the odds? Um, yeah. So those types of coincidences, they really are. I mean, they they really do basically put it in your face in a way that that does ask you to believe something almost impossible to believe. So I guess there is some some aspect of that, whether it was intended or not by Frankenheimer or whoever was involved in that aspect of the production. It's um, almost like she's being set in there to like uh, screw with his programming, to yes. reverse the engineering or do something with him. Exactly, know? yes. Oh. Well, I, I, and I, I, from a narrative perspective, I'm not sure how that makes sense. I mean, clearly, I guess uh, his Sergeant Shaw's mother was setting him up to to assassinate Jordan, and I guess I, I assume that his daughter was just collateral damage in that. But yeah, because he's trained to kill anyone who happens upon right. the scene. She, yeah. she comes downstairs. Yeah. Exactly. So. I don't know. Very interesting. There's a lot to to puzzle out there. But um, I and again, just finally on the Sir Sirhan note, I will ask people to go back and listen to episode 220, where I played some of the uh, excerpts from the experiments, uh, the TV series from Britain with uh, Darren Brown. Um, basically replicating the RFK assassination by programming someone to go into assassination mode when seeing a woman with a red dress touching him on the shoulder or a, a polka dot dress. So it, it, if, if that television show is to be believed and you know, Darren Brown is a trickster, so maybe it isn't, but at any rate, supposedly this really can take place and you can actually watch someone basically being programmed to do this. So fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, I, again, there are so many different rabbit holes here and uh, so many different things we could explore. I guess we should sh touch on the issue of the 2004 remake uh, that came out, obviously, of, on four-plus decades after the, the original movie and four-and-a-half decades after the book, which I have 
poo-pooed a couple of times <laughs> uh, as not a very good movie. But you did raise an interesting point before we started recording about the, uh, the, the subtle change to the narrative that's made in that movie and what it might uh, be telling us about the change in the overall narrative that they're trying to portray with this story. Uh, can you tell the, the listeners about that? Yeah, well, in the 62 uh, movie, uh, the, of course, the enemy is the communist bloc the monolithic communist bloc that the West is allegedly facing down in the Cold War. And um, Manchuria, of course, that's communist China. But by 2004, the Cold War, of course, is over by, what, 15, 16 years? If I do my math right. And um, so they need a new enemy. Um, but strangely enough, the en- it's, they still use the word Manchuria because they need the title Manchurian candidate. In this case, it's a global, global corporation, an international global corporation called Manchurian Global. And it's a, um, it's a uh, sort of a consortium of different um, corporations uh, that are engineering or creating these mind-controlled assassins or can't into, and of course, in the course of getting um, the vice president. And in this case, I think the movie The Vice President is, is a war hero from the Gulf War in 1991, I think, if I recall. I haven't seen the movie in a few years. But, um, and... Um, Getting him into the White House and just using an assassination engineer you know, to you know get him into the White House. Um, but the, the interesting thing there is the threat is a global corporation uh, that profits off chaos and war, <laughs> nonstop mm. chaos and war. Yes, which you know, again, what, is, what are they telling us there? I guess they expect the most of the people who've seen the movie aren't going to really think it through or you know think through the implications of that. But it tells us the enemy has changed. But what is the enemy? The enemy is is, is what the new world order. It's uh, it's you know Mr. Global. It's the uh, it's the corporations that run really run the world. The elite, and um, they're just out there stirring up trouble, creating wars so they can profit off the the contracts, the instability, and you know. Mm. You know, kind of like the IMF World Bank model. And yeah. All. <laughs> no, I mean, it's an interesting change. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there are, I guess, two ways of looking at, at that. I mean, maybe not mutually exclusive ways. One, it's, one is that, that that is just a reflection of the general milieu that we are now in an age where that sort of thinking is 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 au courant, that people can actually think along those lines. And, mm-hmm. and it's more understandable and believable in our current context than some... I, I guess, I mean, communist menace or something of that sort. I mean, I guess they could have made North Korea the enemy or something, but it would have, <laughs> I mean, it would have been laughable. But yeah. uh, so, so it, it makes sense on some level. But then the other question is, well, then are we at this time being programmed for some reason to understand the world in those terms? <laughs> and if so, by whom and for what purpose? I mean, is this, is this revelation or is it limited hangout or, or what is it? And I'm not sure if I have an answer to that. Well, I, you know, are we being engineered to accept it? Sort of predictive program mm. conditioning. We get that with the. Um, I think that's part of when you talk about trauma, and um, mind control, and this gets into this, perhaps some of the more ambitious, less reported aspects of MK Ultra was it wasn't so much to create a mind control assassin or to target certain individuals to create couriers or, or uh, sex slaves. The more lurid stories. Um, uh, one part of at least I'm Alter, it, it was to uh, control the entire population, subjected to mind control, and that wasn't necessarily uh, opiating them. Of course, I think we get that with Sub Project Fifty Eight. I think John Irvin did research on that with Life Magazine, uh, popularizing the the magic mushroom and 
ushering in the the, um, the psychedelic era. But that's only one element to it because there's a dialectic being played there. When you mentioned going this interview is how the movie came out in the tail end of Hollywood's heyday, the, the classic period of black and white before we were subjected to all the you know the um, conflicts and strife of the '60s that was brought in with the Kennedy assassination. Almost, it seemed like there was like a that's that's the inflection Flipping of the switch, yeah. Yeah, that's even when fashion changes and all that stuff, and you, 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 the music changes. You know, all of a sudden, um, you know, you get you, you go from you know Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons to the Beatles, and the music changes. And, all, and some people have even done research with the music itself. You could say uh, the music scene itself might have been some aspect of MK Ultra. If you do the re, uh, if you uh, look at the research of Dave McGowan, uh, more recently with John Potash and drugs, how these things can be weaponized. Entertainment is weaponized. Um, and I think what happened uh, was, uh, oh, with a lot of these things, with the 60s, you get the dialectic, you get the division because you get the middle class reacting against the hippies and the counterculture, which is m much of it was created uh, by, the, by the corporations, by the think tanks, by the foundations, by the intelligence agencies. Um, so uh, you do get this division, this, this sort of the separation within the generations themselves, the whole generation. Some argue that even the whole notion of the teenager was a creation of Hollywood and the corporations, you know, with the marketing of James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause and these things. Prior to that, these things didn't really exist in our, in our psyche, our understanding of how we relate to one another. Um, and it wasn't just the post-war prosperity and TV and music and the phonograph and the accessibility of the car. All that played into it. But interesting enough, in my research, I even found out that even the whole creation of suburbia the interstate highway system was all part of a military social engineering plan to fundamentally change the politics and culture of the nation. Um, so it, these things aren't quite as spontaneous as you think we are. And if we really do the research, we find out that we really are guinea pigs in a, in a massive social engineering uh, 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 you know, experiment mm -hmm. that's been going on. And it, and it branches out in so many different areas. And, and when you put it in those terms and you bring in that context, I mean, it it should give us pause for thought about all of the things we see going around on around us and to what extent we are being led along a path and to what extent yeah. we may even be participating in that without knowing. And that does oh, yeah. raise the question for me. I mean, there there has been such an uptick in the the ideas of conspiracy in various uh, television and movie uh, television shows and movies over the last several years, that one wonders if we are being led into some sort of path and and what path that might be and for what purposes if if it's just the age old kind of dividing people amongst each other to into the you know the the credulous and the incredulous and, and things of that nature. But uh, again, it, it really does put the, uh, the, the, the question at the doorstep of movies and books like these that are they, are they trigger mechanisms? Are they revelations? Are they a bit of both? Are they programming us? Uh, it's always a question and uh, fascinating various uh, threads that we can take from that rich tapestry. I guess we've covered quite a bit of ground here. Is there anything else specifically about your research on this book or movie that you wanted to bring up? Well, books, uh, movies, the arts, um, entertainment, uh, these things shape how we view the world, what we expect of the world, how we view ourselves, and the powers that be that are all that always exist, presumably will always exist, aren't going to take a laissez-faire approach to them. And this type of manipulation goes back as at least as far back as Plato and allegory of the cave. So it's not we're not being uh, too conspiratorial or paranoid to suggest that the movies we see, the books we read, 
the the media we we, we take the food we eat everything um, is being weaponized to one extent or another to manipulate us uh, to serve the interest of of of, of an elite a self uh, a self uh, uh, you know anointed elite um, again it's just one of these things that it, to deny that these things aren't being planned is to deny the reality of social engineering and social engineering is a fact and social engineering by its very by its very name requires some level of conspiracy you know and malfeasance on the part of those planning so it's naive to think that that the the, the planners aren't planning and that the people that really run things aren't you know, using their vast resources to manipulate the affairs of man that serve, you know, in, in their interests. Uh, and the evidence is there if you do the research. It's to take time. Just like, it, it, you know, if you go over these things, it almost sounds like we're rambling, going on and on and on because there's so much to it. But you have to take the time and, and you know, maybe turn off the idiot box and read and, and connect the dots. When you start to connect the dots, you, really, you start to see the plan. Unfortunately, or, or the, yeah, there's no shortcut to this type of information and the real yeah. depth of what's going on here. And a uh, public that is unwilling or unable to do that type of research or just sit down and read a book is a public that is going to be at the whim and mercy of uh, these larger operations that are being performed on them, whether they know about it or not. So that's the, really the raison d'etre of this whole podcast series is to try to uh, to understand that these things that we just passively consume as entertainment are not entertainment. And uh, it's all, you know, how, how you how you pull that puzzle apart may may depend uh, on your your stances and your your historical knowledge, but at any rate, it's it's certainly a puzzle to be pulled apart. And 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 in the cinema, particularly movies, are, are very important because they capture uh, uh, words, imagery, and music. You right? Yeah. So you know, and so that's very important. Yeah, it's very powerful, very powerful medium. And uh, as you say, I mean the the study of of the effect that. Uh, fictional works has on people the real emotional impact that it can have and the effect that it has on their worldview has been talked about openly talked about and studied since the time of the ancient Greeks so mm-hmm. again if we're uh, ignorant of that it's at, it's at our own detriment all and right more I recently, think, sorry more recently we have, we have uh, Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann of so course yeah well I, exactly it's been really weaponized and made into a, a, a scientific technique but uh, it's always been there to one form or another All right, again, a lot of ground covered, so I think we're going to leave it there, but uh, I hope that people um, got something out of this movie and or book. Um, As I say, I'm reading the book, and it's uh, it's actually quite well-written, so I would tentatively recommend it based on what I've read so far. But um, we'll leave it there for now. Again, I hope people will check out Tim Kelly's podcast. It's called Our Interesting Times. The the URL is rather unwieldy, so please do go to the show notes and follow the link from there to uh, download some of the past episodes. Tim Kelly, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. All right, friends, there goes Tim Kelly, and there is another edition of Film Literature and the New World Order. And as I say, we are back on track for a regular monthly series. So don't fret. What is on the plate for next month? Well, before we get to that, why don't we, as always, take a tour through the comment section of the previous edition of Film Literature and the New World Order at CorbettReport.com, where we had a number of comments, uh, as always, on our last edition of this series back in September when we were talking to uh, Jay Dyer of Jay'sAnalysis.com about The Prestige. So, for example, we had Orenda Review leaving a uh, correction, which I guess, it's been so long I don't really remember this, but apparently... Uh, there was a uh, misattribution to uh, Arthur C. Clarke of the Three Laws of Robotics when Clarke's Three Laws, not Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, Clarke's Three Laws are the Three Laws of Prediction formulated by the British science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. And a render review 
copies uh, them into that comment there so you can go and read about that uh, we had Eric writing excellent episode I enjoyed this film when it first came out and my appreciation of it has certainly deepened from listening to this discussion which delved into layers of complexity that I hadn't yet explored uh, the similarities between statecraft and stage magic are many and yet I hadn't ever thought of the prestige in this light it helps answer a question that has always vexed me why do people still support politicians watch mainstream news or vote when the fraud of these institutions is so obvious and well-documented. They don't see it because they don't want to see it. I once saw a show about magicians' tricks revealed, explaining how all the stage magic tricks of David Copperfield and the like are done, and it now makes me wish that someone would make a documentary or show revealing all uh, a documentary or show revealing all the political and economic tricks that are used to manufacture consent and steer the public into supporting outrageous policies. It's also worth mentioning that before I saw The Prestige, I had never even heard of Nikola Tesla. It seems to me that this film uh, helped pull Tesla, whom I consider to be a great man, out of obscurity and into the minds of the masses. An interesting comment. Uh, also, on the flip side of that, we had Alice88 saying, I didn't care for this film when I saw it years ago, and after this analysis, I still don't care for it. Lots of violence, a woman drowned before the viewer's eyes. The film also undermines the family unit. Wife and daughter may never really know who, uh, husband and father, who could be a pair of identical twins. Then there is adultery, dot, dot, dot. And some more about uh, Twilight language and revelation of the method. Um, also, an interesting comment from uh, Sagned, who says, Does somebody remember the nice little scene at the beginning of the film, The Recruit, where CIA man Al Pacino meets younger, youngster Colin Farrell for the first time? Nothing is what it seems, is Pacino's slogan all the time, and he introduces himself with a newspaper magic trick. The filmmakers made their point well, suggesting a deep connection between magic, media, and intelligence agencies. And then uh, he leaves a few links to various other uh, works mentioning the connections there between media and magic and intelligence. All right, lots of discussion there. And as always, please do get your comments in about this conversation so that we can go over them next month. But what are we going to be discussing next month? Well, we're going to do something, I believe this is the first here on the Film Literature New World Order podcast. We're going to listen or watch a relatively new release. So uh, I hope it's still in theaters for you, wherever in the world you may be living. It's The Big Short, which you may have heard about. If not, of course, the link will be in the notes for this edition of FLNWO for you to get caught up. And I'll, well, I'm looking forward to talking to you again next month. Once again, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.